The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 139. According to the UN, Tuvalu is the least visited country in the world, with less than 1,000 tourists per year. Tuva who? Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is a person with both the easiest and the coolest intro yet, Mike Spencer-Bound, the most traveled man in the world. Mike, thanks for joining me today, and welcome. Glad to be here. So... Instantly, Mike, I think it's a really cool tagline, the most traveled man in the world. I think it's a great talking point, but I'm sure a lot of people ask you then, you know, can you tell us the title, the most traveled man in the world? Where does that come from and what does it mean? Because it's a pretty provocative and pretty cool little introduction piece. Well, it came from a media frenzy. So I didn't think there'd be so much interest. Like I had, I had one before where the media were very interested in me when I did um, Somalia. So I went and backpacked around Somalia a little bit. And uh, then when I was doing my last country, which happened to be Ireland, there was another of this swarm of media where, you know, everyone wanted me to come into studios and do television and all kind of things. So and they were saying I was the most traveled man. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but uh, I guess I'm just going to have to take their word for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a pretty cool title to be bestowed upon you. And what does that mean then? Because I, I've been reading a lot about the type of traveling you do, and, and there's other people out in the world who have been every country and things like that. And I'm sure some people listening think, what? There's more than one person who's been to every country, but you're traveling as Oh, a yeah. Lot. There's hundreds, actually. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. There, I'm, I was going to say at least, a, at least a hundred. So, hundreds of people have been to everyone. But you're traveling is a bit different than someone who goes and sets foot in a country and then leaves. Yeah, I think I might be one of the first or maybe the first non-competitive traveler to have seen all the countries. So most of the people who've been to all the countries have uh, usually actually they're, they work for an airline or they're in the tourism business and they have a habit of coming in and putting their foot across a border and then declaring a country done. And really they're racing and racing to uh, get all their countries done. I found for talking to people that usually the most traveled people I'd speak to have done about 65. And when you start to get over 100, you start to get country counters. And uh, country counters can be identified because they don't have any stories. And I've gotten that as well. People asking like, oh, how many countries have you been to? You talk a lot about travel. You have a travel podcast, a travel website. Or I get the question, wait, why are you going back to Thailand? Haven't you been there four times before? And things like that. You know, Obviously, there's a lot of places in this world I haven't been, a lot of places that I want to see. But I don't think you can ever say, Oh, I've I've been to that country. Like, let's cross it off a list, and it and it's done. You know, there's always things that are changing. You've actually spent a lot of time in every country that that you've been to, right? Yeah, I, I like to go into a country and speak to the locals and uh, hear from them what they think is worthwhile to see in in their country. Or if they don't have an idea, then just roam around. And after I've had enough adventures and uh, I feel that I got 
you know, a feel for the country and what it's about, then I'll say I've been there. But if all I've done is, you know, landed in a, a city and seen just a few typical tourist things, I won't say I've been to the country. I'll, I'll say maybe I've been like, for instance, I went a couple of times to Seoul and areas around there. But if someone said, have you been to South Korea? I'd say, no, not really. I saw a little bit of Seoul. But then finally, I think it was two or three years ago, I went and went all around the country. And, you know, then I'd say, OK, I've seen it. Is there any number that you could put on it? Like, is there a country that you've spent the least amount of time in that you know of that? Oh, yeah, it's this country. I've been there, but this is the one that I've spent the smallest amount of time in. Well, I'd say the, the Vatican. <laughs> yeah, I was there for one day. I mean, I, I saw Pope John Paul give a speech. This was just random. So, he, uh, you know, they threw down that carpet and he went and gave a speech in the St. Paul Square. But yeah, I wasn't there for very long. Any other countries than, than this micro country or micro state of the Vatican? Okay, well, there's um, Guinea Equatorial. I spent years of effort to get in there. And finally, at the end, I had to stay in a um, sleazy brothel on um, Carrefour-Niamniak in Yaoundé for three weeks, working all day, every day while suffering from malaria, uh, manufacturing fake documents. And finally, I was able to get into it. And when I got there, I found it was just uh, notable for smelly bats and corruption. And after a few days, I left. <laughs> All right. So so you've been at least a few days in, in every country then. And I do think the title, The Most Traveled Man in the World, it fits you because reading your story, as you mentioned, you do like to kind of get into the country. But I want to delve a little bit into the, the pre-journey, Mike Bound. And you know, if you could tell people when you left on, like, how old were you when you left on this journey? And what was it like before the journey? Did you envision that this is what your life would look like? I didn't really have a vision for my life involving travel, because originally I was intensely interested in wilderness. So I used to go and live for up to six months or, or sometimes three months or six months were quite common alone in the wilderness without speaking to anyone and without seeing any humans at all. And I'd just be living off the land, just snaring animals, fishing, picking nuts and berries, doing a lot of writing and poetry and things like that. And I was more interested in that. And I sort of expanded the ecosystems that I was exploring in that fashion. Eventually, I met a, a woman who was uh, making a living, getting silver from Asia or from other areas where it's relatively cheap, and then selling them at music festivals while driving around. So I did that with her for a while. And that involved, you know, a lot of travel to try to source jewelry. And then I just got into travel and just didn't stop. <laughs> it sounds so easy. I got into travel and didn't stop. How old were you when you kind of first took off? Because the whole thing was it was 23 years before you had come home again. How old were you when you first took that foray? Uh, I guess I would have been in my early 20s. But I would come home every so often. I, mean, I, think, I think there's some years I didn't. But usually I would come home if there was, a, I don't know, if it's some important birthday, like my grandmother's 80th and things like this. So I would come back for a brief visit, but it was actually intense traveling when I'd come back to Canada because, of course, people I know around Canada would want me to visit also. So I do, you know, really, really fast travel, faster than my usual pace when I was technically not traveling. And then after a few weeks of that, I'd be uh, back on the road. And so what was your travel like when you were on the road? Because I think that's a very interesting point that I want to hit on a little later in the podcast. And sometimes when you come home, it actually being... Maybe not harder, but but maybe more challenging in some ways than being on the road. When you were on the road, what did it look like? How much did you plan out? Because some of these countries were obviously fairly difficult to get into. Well, at first it was easier for corruption. So like when I did Central America in the early 90s, I just bribed my way through every border. So and it, it cost less than I, if I'd actually gone to Ottawa and tried to get the visas. 
So, you know, that was pretty easy that way. I used to travel with just one backpack. I still do. And it's the same backpack. It's never been stolen. Gradually, I just um, got rid of anything that would in my life that was kind of fixed or permanent and just became used to constantly traveling with the same backpack. So I have no possessions. I don't have any um, house or any rent that I'm paying anywhere, nothing like that. So after a while, it becomes as easy to travel as not to travel. And since I prefer to travel, I just carried on with it. Was there a time for you that you thought, okay, I am going to make it a goal to go to every country in the world? Because like you said, you're not competitive. That was never your point to be the most travel man or anything like that. But was there a point where you said, all right, I've done quite a bit now. I'm going to go for every country. Or did it creep up on you? Well, that idea would come and go almost like a sine wave. So occasionally I'd, I'd feel like if I finished a continent, I'd think, oh, wow, you know, it won't take long to finish the world. But then I'd get in on the next continent and find out how massive it was. You know, like when I started in on Africa and I was thinking, ooh, okay, I don't know if it's even possible. And uh, like Africa alone must have been four years almost, three and a half to four years. It was four or five trips. And you can imagine, well, South America is slightly faster. You can do it in two years if you're really fast for South America because that's such good uh, transport connections. But ones like Asia, it's probably eight years for that. That's why I'm, I'm kind of startled when I read about people who, you know, I guess recently there was a couple of guys who finished the earth in four years. I'm thinking, what, four years? You know, you can't even do uh, like um, Eastern Asia would probably take you four years. So how did they do the, the world? And so I'm just imagining them sticking their foot across borders and saying, oh, done, done. <laughs> Yeah, it just takes, there's so many interesting things in almost every country is full of interesting things. And so for you, was there a plan? Like, did you spend a lot of time on one continent and then let's say Africa, for example, were you in Africa most of the time or did you kind of bounce in and out? And how much planning did you do in advance? Was it, you know, spur of the moment type thing? I'd say practically no planning unless it was, uh, unless I was in a situation where it was a dangerous country. So for Somali and Puntland, I spent maybe six weeks of planning. But even then, there's only so much planning you can do for, like for a dangerous country. Because the more you try to research it, you find that the information you find of whether it's safe or not safe in various areas forms something like a, a curve as well. And the more data points you get, it just sort of fills in that curve. But it's still just a matter of probability. So you never know for sure. Like you'll get, like for instance, before going into Puntland, there were even Somalis who were telling me as soon as I arrive, I'd be captured by pirates who were in fact the government. And either killed or held for ransom. And other people saying, oh, no, it's quite fine. Just go in there. You know, you can even go and just do some shopping and come back. So and, and you find other information would fall somewhere between those two. But the more you ask people, you never get the definitive answer. You just get more data points and you can see, OK, it's a curve and you can try to guess how risky it is. But you never know. So that's the only sort of planning I do is for um, risky countries like that. So when you were going to take a risk, when you are going into a risky country, and even though some people are probably saying it's okay and others are saying, you know, you're going to get captured right away, was there apprehension or was there was there wonderment? Was there curiosity? Were you scared? Because, you know, you were, and we're going to get into this a little bit, the first tourist ever into Somalia. And I want you to tell that story a little bit and maybe you can do it now. But, you know, you don't know what to expect because no one's been there and people are telling you all that stuff. So what did you feel personally? Well, here's an example. When I when I was going into Iraq during the war, this was during Operation Iron Grip phase of the second Gulf War. Everyone was telling me that it was way too dangerous and I'd be immediately killed. But I made a strategy that I would dress as an Iraqi and just uh, not speak so no one could realize I was speaking English and just hitchhike around the country and watch the Americans battling against the Iraqis and otherwise just talk to the Iraqis and feel what they felt 
about uh, what was going on and just see some of the cultures there. And it worked out really well. So I was a bit, I felt kind of excited going in there. It was quite thrilling to do it. And even more thrilling when I, you know, managed not to be arrested or shot or anything else. So, you know, I, I was arrested once by Americans, but they let me go almost immediately. That was in Mosul. Oh, I had a few times where the hotel owner would be pushing against my chest, not letting me out the door. And I couldn't understand what he was saying in Arabic. But then just a few minutes later, there'd be explosions and gunfire outside. I was thinking, oh, okay, he knew it was going to kick off out there. Wow. So he was forcing you back in because he wanted to help you, not... Yeah, and they'd all be laughing as well. I think they were trying to keep their backpacker alive. They all thought it was very, very amusing that I was wandering around viewing things. And I was going to all the tourist sites as well, which, uh, oddly enough, uh, the tourist sites tend to be occupied by military. Because if you think about it, a tourist site often has toilets and it has a car park and has everything like that, like little outbuildings. So it's actually a perfect place to put military units. So, yeah, a lot of the tourist sites in Iraq were occupied by, you know, I think there was British SAS was in one of them. Americans were in a couple of them. And I had uh, Peshmerga were at the, the site of ancient Nimrud in the north. And what was the motivation for you to go in? Was it because you wanted to see something that, you know, people couldn't really tell you what was happening because no one had been there in the way that you were? Was that your motivation or was it something else? Well, I actually got a bit of a hint that I could do it because I'd been in Iran anyway. So I had a, a friend in London and she wanted to do a, a bunch of photographs for, I think, for finishing a photography degree. But she wanted to photograph the underground party scene of Iran. So she asked if I could come along and pretend to be her husband so she could travel around more easily and get to these illegal parties. And OK, good. So I went in like that and we pretended we were married. And I went to a couple of the parties with her, which are quite full on. I mean, these um, the Iranians, they fling off that chador and hijab and everything else. And they're dressed like they're at a, a club in Europe. And people were drinking. You know, people there's even people bringing in illegal drugs. They had um, marijuana. They call their alcohol dealer. Usually an Azuri guy would arrive and he's almost like a drug dealer, but he's got different kind of alcohol. Okay, that's a little bit interesting, but I wasn't there for it. You know, I wasn't also investigating parties. I wanted to see the, the whole country. So I just wandered around from there. And at one point I met a Japanese guy and he'd managed to dash across Iraq. And I said, well, how did you get the visa? I thought they're not giving the visas. And he said, oh, you just pay a, like a one dinar bribe and you can get across the border. And he told me he moved at night so no one can see him. And in three days, he crossed the country and got into Iran. So I said, oh, I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm going to try. I'm going to move around in the daytime and, you know, try to talk to people. And it worked out really well. So I was there a few weeks. And during that time, I mean, you said you, you tried to pretend that you're an Iraqi and, and you weren't speaking English, but I, I assume people caught on to it. Right. And the people who did, was it was it fascination with you? Was it apprehension? Were they scared? Were they friendly? What was it like when they figured out like. No, he actually is just a tourist coming into our country to wander around. <laughs> well, well, usually it was the kids in the market would figure it out. And they'd be saying, Americani, Americani. And I'd say, no, no, no. <laughs> I had to show them my passport. <laughs> yeah, or sometimes with money changing. So when you're, when you're there and you need to change money, there'd be a guy with a bag of dinars and an AK somewhere in a market. And you go up to him and try to speak to him in English. And he'd nearly fall on the ground laughing. And finally, you could change a bit of like American $100 bills to uh, yeah, to Iraqi money. It was pretty fun. Yeah, friendly people there too. So Iraq was one of them. And I want to talk about some of your most interesting stories because, you know, I'm sure it happened. It's 23 years worth of travel and, and even more, you know, than that. What are some of the stories 
that when someone asks you like why why did you do this you know why did you basically stay on the road and and some of the things that you've seen that other people have never seen uh, obviously Iraq being one of them which there's some other ones that stick out in your mind as just truly unique to your travel experience well I had one that brought together my love of living in the wilderness and travel at the same time so this was one of my favorite and this was the DRC and I'd, I'd been paying attention to the DRC for years because I knew I was going to have to do it. But I kept hearing stories that as soon as you cross the border, police and army rob you of everything you have. And you don't even have a backpack. You got no passport. You got no money. You just have to you know, limp half naked back to the border and try to get away somehow. And I was thinking, oh, it sounds almost undoable. But then I got a hint of how to do it when I was in Almaty in Kazakhstan. There was this uh, distinguished elderly gentleman that I met in a bar and where they were talking for a bit. And afterward, he says, oh, give me a call and we'll have another beer sometime. And I looked at his business card and it was a U.N. security inspector. So he was in, he was in charge of enforcing security for the U.N. I thought, "Ooh, perfect. So I had that laminated and I kept it. And then years later, I was uh, right near the Rodenzori Mountains and I was going to cross over. And the, the head of USAID for uh, Rwanda was telling me, no, you can't do it. You'll be instantly killed. You know, as soon as you go across, it's full of like Hutu genocidal rebels out there and everything else. And I thought, no, no, I have a plan because there's so much uh, UN place there who have armor. So they have APCs. They have they even have UN tanks there. And it's because of all the mass rapes. So they're trying to stop that. I'm not sure how successful they were with stopping it, but they're giving it a go anyway. And I thought, I'm just going to impersonate a United Nations security inspector and therefore get through. And, and it worked. So I had this card and the name is different. So the name of the guy on the card is not my name. But the guys who are trying to rob you are illiterate. So, yeah, so I just started hitchhiking through there. And there was a, a guy carrying a load of uh, spare tires to try to sell them on the other side of the mountains in a pineapple picking village. And I, I rode with him in the truck. And sure enough, like seven, eight times a day, you'd have various kinds of militia or they might have been rebels. A lot of them might have been police. I'm not sure exactly who they are, but they're like big groups of armed men. And they'd be yelling very angrily in French, give me all your money. But then I'd show my card. And suddenly they're like, oh, okay, salute me. <laughs> Off you go. So when you're involved in a situation like that, I mean, obviously you've had quite a few of those type of things where, you know, uh, your life would have been at risk, but, but you found a way around it or, or people were telling you that your life would be at risk. What were you feeling inside? Like, did it ever dampen? Like, were you ever at the point where you're like, oh, no, this is, I, I've been through this before. It's okay. Or were you always kind of anxious because I can't even fathom doing that once, let alone a hundred different times throughout my journeys. See, I just found it really fun. Like I'd be wondering, how am I going to get food? And then I'd see like someone with literally a hot potato come out of the jungle and he's juggling it because he, you know, it's too hot to hold. Flip him a coin and you've got the potato. You can eat that. You're good for a day. Maybe next day you see someone with a handful of minnows they caught in the swamp. You might be able to cook those over a bit of charcoal. So yeah, so it's kind of a challenge to see if you can keep yourself fed. You know, after a while, I started carrying tins of sardines just in case, because sometimes you can go for days without food in situations like that. But then on the other side, I noticed the Chinese had built a dirt road right into the primordial jungle, like deep, deep into the Congo. And so I went along that by a thousand kilometers by motorcycle. And I just find a local guy who had a motorcycle. And I say, can you drive me to the next guy who has a motorcycle who agrees to drive me further? And so I kind of kind of leapfrogged along and it was quite rough. I mean, there's a lot of a uh, lot of butterflies were coming out of the forest. You got butterflies smacking all over your face and um, it's a very rough road. So, of course, you're, you're bleeding and, you know, slashed by the bike in various places. But eventually I ended up in Napulu and I saw this foreigner come out of a hotel. there, like a cheap two dollar a night hotel. 
And I said, what? They told me no foreigner could come here without being instantly killed. And he said, they told me the same thing, but here I am, right? And I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I've just been working for weeks to organize my expedition to go live with the Bambooty Pygmy tribe. And I said, oh, I want to join your expedition. He said, yeah, I'd be glad of some company. So I ended up, I, sh I shot him a few hundred bucks for the, the cost of his organization. But that didn't really cover, of course, all his time. I was really lucky because he went and sorted out a English to Pygmy translator. It's not an easy thing to find. A guy who's an expert at making a introduction to tribes and two Nandu guys with um, assault rifles. So they were Nandu tribesmen. They were also forest rangers. Now, I think they've since been killed because I don't know if you saw in the news, but a few years ago, uh, the um, ranger station was attacked, the one for the Okapi Park there. And the, the Okapis they've been breeding were killed. And it was some elephant poachers. and They wiped out all the rangers. But, it, but at that time, these two guys were still alive. And they were helping to guard us as, against elephant poachers as we went through the jungle. And they're quite serious guards. Like you get kind of not so serious guards sometimes like in Somaliland where they just ride with you and they're kind of asleep. But these guys were really alert and like one would go ahead and another one's hiding in the bush, you know, ready with his gun. And I remember thinking, wow, these guys are pretty serious with their guarding. But I, I guess they knew that it was dangerous. Yeah. So, so I ended up going in and living with the Bambooty Pygmy tribe. And we, we hunted antelope with uh, spears and nets and lived in little huts made of leaves. And what was it? like having them welcome you like why did they welcome you was it was it awkward at first or was it kind of open arms we're fascinated by these people i think they might have had a photographer come to stay with them before so you know this this slovak guy i was with uh, peter he was a professional photographer and i think before them in trouble with the congo they'd had a photographer come there before and and um peter was thinking he could get in and get some more pictures of this particular group of pygmies which is uh, not normally doable because, you know, the DRC has such a bad reputation. But, yeah, they seemed, they seemed pretty friendly, and it was easy to fit in there. I mean, we just lived in the grass huts. We ate antelope all the time. That's all they eat is antelope. They smoke antelope to trade to some of the Bantu along the road, but they're very carnivorous. I mean, they, they find the occasional cola nut or uh, occasional passion fruit. And if you want, you can, you know, get, get some of the women to find some mushrooms for you if you want to put something with your antelope. But, you know, on, on account of the monotony of the diet, eventually we left. So I think we were there for a couple of weeks. Wow. So you lived with them for a couple of weeks and it was always you and, and your friend Peter that whole time. Yeah. So we'd go out hunting with them and help to drive the animals into the nets. And I was trying to help him. I don't normally carry a camera, but he had eight. So I was helping him take some photos. <laughs> I was filming him trying to climb halfway up a tree to try to get film of another uh, pygmy who'd gone really far up to chop out a bee's nest. So yeah, there's lots going on. It's a pretty fun life for them there, for these pygmies. So for you, most of your traveling, I mean, when you set off, you, you did it solo. Was most of it solo or did you happen to then find people along the way that you would travel with for extended periods of time? That often happened. Like, like for instance, when I was going up the Nile, I met a young German guy and eventually an elderly Irishman and we ended up traveling together. So, and I, I kind of like when you get a long trip where you're sort of, you're with the same people for at least a few weeks or even a month. It's sort of fun. You get to know people a bit better, a bit more of an adventure. And more so than doing countries, I like to do geographical areas. So, so for instance, that trip up the Nile, going through the Sudan, then you take a, a left at uh, Khartoum and uh, head up into the Ethiopian highlands. It's really fun because you get to see the changing geography and the changing cultures as you go along there. Was there ever a time that you actually did, you know, fear for your life? Or was there ever a time where you... That kind of scared you into thinking, oh, I, I don't know if I can keep doing this or I'm not sure like why I'm doing this or, or those questioning things that you must have had at, at some point, I would assume, unless 
maybe it just was all roses all the time in your head. Well, I, I had one scary experience. I'd gone into Central African Republic, and the guidebook had said, it was, I think it was a lonely planet I had at the time, and it said, this is bungee jump traveling. All you can do is fly into the capital, take a hotel, and fly out. Now, I thought, okay, I'll test this by trying to hitchhike across the border and then hitchhike around the entire country, which they said was not possible on account of rebels. So I arrived there, and it was quite tough going the first day, and I was, I was thinking, oh, no, it might not even be doable because there was a lot of police corruption, and it seemed also like uh, very, very bad roads, and I was wondering if you'd even be able to hitchhike at all. But then the, the next morning, I got out on the road, and I saw this brand-new truck coming along. And it pulled up beside me, and it was an elderly Italian nun. And she'd been living in Africa almost her entire career as a nun. And she's the one who was running the program to try to eliminate the, um, what was it now? I think sleeping sickness is what she was working on. So there was a, like a company out of Boston that made a drug, and she was administering. And it, was, it was going very well. And she was also one, the only one who stayed behind during the worst of the war. She was sleeping out in the jungle and keeping the hospital running, keeping the generator running, doing the surgeries because she's a medical doctor as well. So, and she was really well known by the locals. So I just hopped in with her and she said, where are you going? And I said, well, I was trying to see the whole country by hitchhiking. She says, oh, well, I'm the inspector of hospitals. So just ride with me and uh, I'll just, whenever there's chimpanzees or tribes or something interesting, I'll stop and you can see it. And I, I just stayed with the monks and her with the nuns in, in various towns around. And I saw the whole country that way. But there was one road that was a little bit scary because we passed a road and I said, oh, I'd like to do that road. And she said, no, 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 you can't, you can't there's cannibals on the road. And I thought, oh, I didn't think that. I thought that's more like 19th century. You hear someone say, you can't take a road on account of cannibals. So you know, I was quite shocked to, to hear that in this day and age, that there's cannibals on a road. So of course, I tried to question her about it. I mean, she didn't speak perfect English and I couldn't speak her language, but I did find out that it was Lord's Resistance Army who were, uh, they were notorious for eating people, doing black magic, uh, all kind of, in fact, anything you can name that's uh, evil, they're up to it. So you decided you never took that road then? Yeah, I didn't because she had told me she only knew about this because she pays careful attention to the roads because, of course, we had to drive them, you know, these various days. She had to know which roads to go down. And she'd had someone come in and explain how it was, it was actually a, a local guy had explained that his niece had tried to go down that road and she'd been captured and killed just a couple of days before by the Lord's Resistance Army. So as a result, she knew they were there. And it's a good thing I didn't go down that. Yeah, and most of your travel then, it sounds, is is through hitchhiking, and I know that you do most of your stuff overland, correct? Like, you you, you know, you try not to get on planes as much as possible and, and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get kind of crazy with it because I don't have OCD. Like, some of these guys who have to do the whole thing, you know, they say, I cannot get on a plane or a boat. It must all be by foot. I mean, I'm not like that. It's, for me, the travel is first, and the transportation is far, far down the list of what I'm looking for. So... If it's uh, at all possible, I'll do it by land because that's what I prefer and you see more and you're down there with the people. But let's say a place like Eritrea where it's um, otherwise extremely difficult to get in because they have, uh, you know, they have disputes with all their neighbors. I just flew into there. So the best option for you and when it's available, sometimes it's just flying. But overall, when you get into countries, did most of your travel, like did you have a goal other than, hey, I just want to go and see the whole country? And was it mostly through hitchhiking then that you would get around? I like to do it the freestyle. So I like to come in there and, and have suggestions of what I might do. And then just like, for instance, that example with the pygmies, how things just happened. And, you know, I ended up with a, with a pygmy tribe in the jungle. That's how I like things to go. So nearly no planning, but enough to hopefully keep, keep me alive and then just hope for the best. 
And th that way I'm maxim maximum flexibility. So if someone uh, proposes something that's quite interesting, I can immediately go and do that. How many times did that happen? I guess it's going to be hard to count. Where, like, Or if there's a specific time that you can remember where you had no idea what was going to happen. And then someone might have proposed something totally crazy and you thought... I'm jumping on that. And you just went and did it. Maybe it was across the world. Maybe it was somewhere close. Is there any specific examples you can remember of something like well, that? Well, I would, I would always do that. I mean, there wasn't as much in, in Europe of this kind of thing. But even there, it would happen. Like, like for instance, once um, a friend said to me, do you want to go to the Czech Tech? And I was thinking, mm, I don't know. What's that about? He said, oh, it's a huge party in Czech Republic. There's 20,000 people. There was like a rave. And I said, okay, good. So he gave me a bit of information, the date it was on and all that. And I took a train into Czech. And then I was asking around and I couldn't seem to find where this Czech tech was. And people told me where it was the year before. So I took a train out there and no, it's not, uh, nothing was there. So clearly it's a rave that moves around. So I thought, ah, oh, I guess I can't find it. But then I noticed a newspaper and it showed the police tear gassing people and beating them with sticks. And I thought, oh, that's got to be the Czech tech. It looks like I found it. And he could speak English and he told me, he told me, oh, yeah, it's here. It's in this uh, village near the German frontier. And I said, oh, great. So I got on a train, and I'm heading out to where I thought the Czech Tech was. And there was four Americans in the same train car as me. And I said, are you guys going to the Czech Tech? And they're saying, oh, you know, we thought about it. Maybe we were going to go. And I said, well, let's go together. It'd be more fun. And they said, okay, great. So we, uh, we got off near to where this party was, and we fortified ourselves with some beers before we we're going to head out to it. And then we asked the owner, can you drop us off at the party? We'll pay you a bit of money. And they said, no, no, you can't. There's uh, tons of cops. They've surrounded the whole thing. They're stopping everyone. We're like, oh, no. So we drink a little bit more beer. And then we have this idea. We call them back again and we say, okay, can you drop us off near to the police, but not exactly where they are? And we'll sneak around them through the bushes. And he says, okay, great. So he does this. But I think that we're not the first people to think of that same idea because we started sneaking through the bushes and we found out there were lines of cops at various parts uh, trying to catch people doing exactly what we were doing. And here I had an advantage and a disadvantage. And what the disadvantage was that my Americans were not very good at moving silently through the bush. So they would talk to each other at inappropriate moments, step on sticks that would crack, you know, all of this. But at the same time, that was an advantage because one of them would make a mistake and all the, the Czech police would blow their whistles, maybe chasing them, then wrestling to the ground and handcuffing them. And while they were busy with that, we'd make forward progress. So, you know, I made, you know, I made a good hun few hundred meters, lose an American, a few hundred meters more, lose an American. And finally, I was thinking, oh, no, I'm down to my last American. I better make this one count. And the, the last difficulty was that it was like a path through the forest. And there was a Czech policeman facing the other way. But he was really, really close. And you had to get past him without being heard and hide behind a tree. And then there need to be some sort of distraction to run to a low wall in a field of poppies near to there. And then from there, you can follow that low wall like half a kilometer and really, really uh, make some good distance. So I whispered to American. I said, OK, I'll go first. And I, I went around and I hid behind the tree and then I gestured for him to go. And of course, he stepped on some sticks and scuffled his feet. And the Czech police guy blows his whistle. And then another cop I wasn't even aware of burst out of the forest and they started chasing this guy. And in the meantime, I got to the wall. I progressed quite far uh, along this wall. And actually, I got out of the police coordinate. So the next thing I saw was like a, a couple stone, like a French couple, really stoned or really drunk. I'm not sure which sitting on a rock in the forest. And so I said, well, where's this check tech? Can you help me out? And they said, just climb to the top of hills and listen, and you should be able to find it. And I said, oh, okay, good, good advice. So I went through all these brambles and singing nettles up to the top of hills listening. And finally, after a few hours, it was deep into night, and I found the check tech. And there you and were. And of course, I, 
yeah, and I got to party for a few hours before the police attacked it with tear gas again. So, so it was good fun. But usually in Europe, you don't get stories like that. You know, quite often in Europe, you just you do a country and you've learned a lot about art and history, and you see, um, I don't know, you lick ice cream cones and you see architecture as you go by. So quite often, I don't have stories from European countries. Well, that's quite the story, and that and that is a great example of just. Kind of just continuing on, right? Like you don't know what the day is going to hold or the week's going to hold, and your your goal is to find this check tech, and eventually you did, and got a few hours of fun out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's well worth it. Yeah, that's basically why I travel. I like to have little adventures like this. One of the things I'm sure that people ask you a lot, and and especially after you've been traveling for 23 years, is how were you able to fund your travels? Were you working when you would get into a country? Did you did you pick up any odd jobs, or was there something that you were able to do throughout this whole time to to make money so that you could have it to do some of these crazy things? I've actually worked very little in my life, almost none. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty good at just noticing a, a way that I can make money, and maybe I would spend like five percent of the whole time of my year on trying to make money, but that five percent would cover my year. Like like here's an example of one that's you know pretty easy to tell. I saw this guy named Dewata in Southeast Asia, and he was carving wooden chickens. And I looked at these chickens, and I was like, wow, these are amazing. Like, he's a master carver. And he had a whole bunch of them, and he would sell to locals who then sell to other locals who finally would try to sell them to tourists on the beach or something like that. And I said, how much are these chickens? And he was saying, well, this one's $1.50. This one's $3. This big one is $5. And I thought, wow, those things would be worth a fortune back in Canada. So I said, I, I'm gonna buy, I want to buy all of the chickens. He's like, what, all of them? I go, yeah, all of them. And I just bought every single chicken that him and his whole family had been working on it. He was doing the finishing touches on them. They had their, you know, a whole shack full of them. And I loaded them into a container. It was about half a container and uh, sent them back to Canada. And then I just traveled in the meantime. And then when I knew my container was arriving, I flew back to Vancouver. And I, I talked to a woman who rented like kiosk space in malls. And I, I got a little bit of space in the, what's it called, that west. West Vancouver Mall and uh, another one was the uh, Guilford and paid a few thousand dollars for that. And in 20 days, I had them all sold. They sold like hotcakes. So people would come in and they'd be buying them for five times what I paid for them. And yeah, so just like you work for 20 days and you've got, what do they buy? Like a few tens of thousands of dollars worth of chickens. You're making four or five times that. You're good for the year, if not the next year afterward. All because of some wooden chickens. Yeah, yeah. And another one, was, um, I was making coffee coffee tables but out of coffee wood and then i'd be selling them saying it's not just a coffee table it's a coffee coffee table because it's made out of coffee wood yeah and those things you could sell that for five or six times what you bought it for as well so did most of the time then you would come back to canada to sell these goods and then you'd and then you'd leave again yeah for the most part so i I timed it with you know a potential family visit anyway back in canada then i'd sell what i what i had and off i went again yeah it was easy times for that sort of thing so then, you know, you've traveled a lot and it's been a 23-year journey here. And I'm sure a lot of people who have traveled for that long, you know, there's some people who say, back in my day, all this stuff was great and this is how it changed. I'm interested in your opinion of how your travel changed and also how travel in general has changed. Okay. In 2004, I went to Petra in Jordan and I went to Little Petra as well, where you can see one of the especially well-preserved uh, rock-cut chambers. And then on the last they have painting of people drinking wine, playing stringed instruments, chatting, socializing. And I was struck by how the common room of the hostel I was in and what they showed on this wall that was from 2,000 years before 
was exactly the same. So it showed a, a continuity of at least 2,000 years in human culture. And then a, a couple of years ago, I went back to Jordan and back to Petra. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, you, you know, it's interesting how, in, how the people are still socializing the same way in the common room. And I went into the common room and I saw that instead everyone was scrying on their smartphones. No, there were no instruments out, no talking going on, not even any drinking of wine or beer or anything. And I thought, wow, a smartphone has actually put a stop to a 2,000 year of continuity of uh, what people do for socializing. Yeah, that that's amazing. And I think that's a great point. I mean, we have so much more accessibility to, to be able to let people know where we are. And that's good in some cases. But as you've mentioned, it kind of stops the social atmosphere of what traveling is all about. Yeah, it's true. And people are in constant contact. The younger ones are in constant contact with their parents now, which you know didn't used to be what it was all about. And, it, and I'm wondering what will become of that, because clearly technology is not going to go backward. So I'm wondering if maybe uh, part of travel will be that you're almost like you're producing images and there's other people who are following you vicariously and it becomes like almost everyone being a blogger. I wonder if that's the future of travel then, because I, I can't see us going back to the, the point before people had smartphones. I think that's a great point with being in contact with, with parents or family. And again, it, it's nice that people can live vicariously through what you're doing. But I'm wondering about you and when you left and, you know, obviously you're leading an unconventional life and there's a lot of people out there who think, hey, I I might want to do that too. You know, I might want to just get up and go and travel, but they get a lot of, you know, blowback from friends or family and people were like, I don't understand why you want to do that. I mean, I even get that from some people who say, I don't understand why you want to travel as much as you do. And, and, you know, I don't even travel full time. We're not completely nomadic or anything like that. What was your situation like when you left? Were there people questioning what you were doing? And did that get easier over the years? Or were there just more people then questioning, why is Mike still away? It's been 23 <laughs> years. Is he ever going to come back and be quote unquote normal? Well, I, I guess I was very lucky in that I have two brothers, both of them married with you know good jobs and uh, two kids each. And I'm the middle son. So <laughs> as a result, there's very little pressure. I can just do whatever I want. So it's been good. And, uh, you know, as a result, yeah, I'm not getting the pressure to stop. And I'm, I'm looking for not the usual things. Like most travelers are looking for something that's beautiful or like most travelers, not backpackers, but most, you know, people who go on holiday and whatnot, vacationers, they're looking for a beautiful place or they're looking for fine restaurants or some places relaxing. And for me, I'm not interested in that at all. So in, unless I'm exhausted for months on the road, I'm, I'm not even looking for a hotel of any kind of quality. I just want to keep the price low and I want to keep the amount of adventure as high as possible. And I don't really care about something if it's beautiful. I want to see what's real. So I'd like to see how people actually live in an area and what the culture is really like. If you just go to these uh, more expensive hotels or international standard places, you uh, you might as well have stayed at home. It's kind of, I, you know, it's not what travel's all about for me. Have you found that your travel has changed at all over the last 25 years? Has your, have your standards risen? Have, they, have you done things differently that you never did when you began? Or is it relatively the same? It's just that other travelers have changed the way they've traveled. I find that I, I get less, um, if, it, if it's at all possible, I get less nervous about things. So, you know, it used to be when I was quite young, let's say arriving first time in Istanbul. And I was trying to figure out the trains and trying to figure out a place where I could get a, a cheap hostel. And I'd feel like a little bit of tenseness, you know, what's this or am I going on the right route and all that. And I find now I'm doing the, the same thing, but with no stress whatsoever. So I guess my level of stress has come down. 
but I don't think it was particularly high even to begin with. So, so in a way, I'm I'm traveling much the same way as before. Things are more expensive though. I've noticed that. I mean, it, it used to be like, for instance, uh, early '90s in Nicaragua, I got a hotel room for three cents. I guess it has nowhere to go but up from three cents. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much rock bottom. I mean, you get what you pay for to some degree. So it's like a a burlap sack to sleep on, full of straw. Uh, a lot of malarial mosquitoes in the room, and uh, people were setting off firecrackers in some big festival outside. But uh, but still, it's a pretty good deal for three cents. And even in Managua, you know, it was about a dollar. And now I find that you're really doing well if you get a hotel for about three dollars fifty. And yeah, I'm not sure you can even go lower than that without sleeping in the ditch. Yeah, and 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 so your travel has stayed. Basically the same. And I, I love that comment that you said that you're not looking for something beautiful. You're looking for something real. And, and, you know, there's ways to do that, that, that you've kind of highlighted. And there's ways that probably people won't experience that if they do certain things. How do you know when it was time to come home? And I, and I know that coming home is this a, a little bit of a vague term for people who travel quite a bit. But now you've decided that you, you are spending some more time than you were before in Canada. Was that a conscious decision to, to change that, or had you just kind of said there's not anything else for me to see? And what are you doing now in terms of being in Canada versus being on the road? Well, I'm only home now because my mom said, come home for Christmas. So I, I'd been living in an orange orchard that, that one near Olympus. A lot of people go there. But it's toward the end of the season, and I rented a little shack there, and I was just sort of wandering on the beach and doing a bit of writing. But you know, I, I was told, uh, could you come home for Christmas? And I thought, oh, okay. So I just uh, I went and you know got various buses and a series of flights and ended up back here. But I'm actually still traveling. But I'm traveling a little bit slower. Like I might go to a place and I might spend a, a month or two there and then do just a, a few days or a few weeks of travel and then spend another month somewhere. So, so for instance, lately I, I was up in St. Petersburg for a while. And then I flew into uh, Kiev, but actually on the same day that the uh, Russians destroyed that Malaysian airliner. Yeah, so my flight in was the only one that didn't get uh, canceled that day because it was a Ukrainian airline flight uh, coming back. And yeah, and I, I hung out there on Maidan Square. So I saw the last of the, they cleared out the last of the protesters. So they brought in, I think it was the Kiev 2 battalion. And they went and had them, you know, battle against the last of the protesters and get them out of the square. Because their argument was these protesters should be on the front lines helping to fight the Russians. And in, in fact, the, some battalions had been raised out of those protesters. But you, you had certain people who just wanted to continue protesting. They didn't. They just liked the, you know, living there for free and putting up roadblocks and feeling important. So these people had to be cleared out. So I had a hostel right there to see what was going on with it. So you know, the police were battling them with, uh, you know, they were throwing Molotov cocktails, and eventually, they, eventually they managed to clear these people out. But it's kind of an interesting historical event. So you know, I was glad to be there to see it. And then I went up into another. I went up into Chernivtsi. And there's a guy running a hostel there, and it's uh, some of the cheapest I've seen recently. So it was uh, a quite a good quality hostel for four bucks a night. A uh, bottle of vodka was a buck. Uh, large pizza is about a buck. So you can live on $10 a day now if, if you want to be in uh, along the Moldovan border in Ukraine. And was that decision to go to Kiev and go to Ukraine, was it based on the fact that stuff was happening there and you kind of wanted to be on the front lines and see what was happening, or was it just something that that came up like a cheap flight or uh, basically was it a conscious well, decision? I, you know, I wish I could say that I'd planned it out, but uh, I didn't really just my visa was running out in Russia and I thought where to go next. And I saw that you could do visa free Ukraine travel now. 
And I thought, oh, that should be that should be a cheaper area because when you when you have certain kinds of war, the price comes down. You know, other kinds of war, the price goes up. So I, I was thinking that this would be a situation where the probably their uh, grievna, their money would drop in value. So I, I went in there mainly for that reason, and then found that it's actually really friendly people and a good place to stay. I mean, I've been there before, but it was a long time ago. And so, what's it like then for you? to come home and what is and what is life like when you are in Canada you mentioned kind of going around Canada quickly and and seeing people is it a difficult adjustment because you've maybe just come from living with a pygmy tribe in the middle of the the jungle or is it you know what are you feeling when you're at home and everything is fairly easy well it's uh mainly I'm doing the uncle mike thing so I'm visiting nieces and nephews you know I'm I'm out uh, visiting my mom and stepdad now and they're house on the beach here so yeah it's just a lot of family visiting i try to come in and see some old friends that i you know i i try to keep in touch with so i've got a, a friend now that we traditionally we meet in the camby in downtown vancouver so soon i'm going to bust into town and we'll have a few beers but that's been like a 25 year tradition that uh, every few years i meet him there so yeah i don't i can't say i know canada all that well anymore the culture's changed quite a bit but still, you know, it's a, a good place to come back to and just uh, reconnect with family. Yeah, and one of my favorite questions to ask people, and I especially want to ask you this one because of just some of the epic stories you've already told, and that's the idea of kind of having these mishaps on the road. And it seems to me that you travel in such a way that, I mean, the mishaps really are the reason to travel, and maybe they're not even categorized as mishaps because you're not planning on something. So how can something go wrong if you're not actually planning on something? But is there anything that you've done? Because I, I get a lot of people saying to me, like, you travel so much, I'm sure you're just, quote unquote, good at traveling. And I tell them, like, the more I travel, the laxer I get. And I forget things and I do th- silly things like, you know, forget my passport here or something like that. Do you have anything that you can point to that was just a, a mishap that you made? Maybe it was your own fault. Maybe it was something, some um, extenuating circumstances that happened, but that really kind of summed up travel for you and it ended up being a good experience in the end. Well, I had one, this was in, um, where was it now? It was in Cameroon. And I was walking along and I saw some branches on the road. And I thought, okay, branches on the road in Africa means someone's doing road work up ahead. So I was quite sure of that. So I just walked around them and kept going. And then I noticed a whole bunch of bees beginning to sting me. And as I tried to brush them away even more and more, and I was being surrounded by a swarm of killer bees. So they were stinging me hundreds of times everywhere. So I ran up the street and some children saw what was happening. And they came over with branches of neem trees and they started whapping and whapping and whapping me. And uh, one little girl gave me a, uh, a stick as well, and I used it to try to scrape bees off and whap them off myself. And this is one advantage where the little Muslim girls actually had an advantage here because they had hijabs to protect themselves. But all the kids were helping me get these bees off. And afterward, I thought, oh, no, I, be- I hope I'm not allergic to killer bee venom because I could rub my hand along my back and I'd find like uh, 30, 40 stingers and do it again and get the same. And so eventually I decided I'd just go into a bar and have a beer. And I got like a little bit of swelling on my face, but not much. And I thought, oh, good. I guess I'm not allergic to, to bee venom. And they didn't get me enough to uh, make me keel over. But I thought, oh, it's interesting that, you know, I was so sure that branches on the road meant uh, road work, like someone should have his truck pulled up and they'd be working on it. And it hadn't occurred to me that it could also indicate killer bees. Wow. The whole reason that I think that I travel, and I assume that you do too, is that 
the more times things happen to you, the more you realize the good in the people that are around you. I mean, these people had no idea who you were, obviously. And here you are running around with bees all around you and, and they're out there helping you. Is that one of your big takeaways from, from all this traveling that you've done? Uh, yeah, you learn that there's friendly people everywhere. I mean, I've met, I've even met some friendly terrorists, you know, at times. Once I was mistaken for a terrorist. So this is just after I left uh, Iraq. I was in a sook and I was just sitting there late at night drinking some tea. And a guy sat down and found out that I spoke English. We were chatting a little bit and he'd asked me where I was from. And I, I mentioned, oh, yeah, I just I just came a few days ago from Iraq. And I was telling him how the Americans, American special forces, had been holding me at gunpoint. Now, I, I wouldn't mean that that was a bad thing. They were, were suspicious and they were trying to decide whether they're going to detain me or not. But he he took it that I was saying that I was some kind of insurgent or anti-Western terrorist. So I said, oh, yeah, for me, too. I was just in there battling the Americans. And he was explaining how he was a, he was from Detroit, but he also had French citizenship. And he's talking about how much he hates the Americans. He wants to kill them, even though he's American. And I thought, oh, okay, interesting. And I, I had an opportunity to listen in. But even him, despite being a terrorist, I don't think he was a very serious one. But you can see even then, you can see the humanity or, or you know, how, how he was thinking and how he got to, to where he was. And, you know, I have lots of experiences like that where I, I meet people that are from an unusual walk of life. Or sometimes I'd meet diplomats, even senior diplomats, and they get drunk and blab lots of secrets as well. <laughs> so it can be quite interesting, the characters you meet along the way. And local people are, almost always have the time to sit and talk to you about the, what's going on in their area. And it's usually fascinating. Are there a few places that you've been, and I'm not going to ask you your favorite places because you've, you've been all these, but, but are there a few places that you've been that you really thought, you know, th- this resonates with me in a way that maybe some other places haven't, or you've just had some really magical experiences in a few places that, that stick out in your mind? Well, I had one that was kind of surprising that I liked a particular beach because I was in the Seychelles. And I'd heard, okay, the royal family from England went there and everyone was saying it's the best beaches in the world. And by that time, you know, when I was in the Seychelles, I'd seen most of the best beaches in the world just just by virtue of being in almost all the countries by that time. And I thought, oh, I'll see about that. And I was very suspicious that maybe just the beaches would be rubbish. But I, I went out to Argent Beach and it had, you know, beautiful pink sand and these giant boulders around that had interesting shapes to them. And the right kind of scale as well, where you could go between boulders, you'd find like a, a little secluded beach or go along a bit further in another one and really good for swimming. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, maybe it is the best beach in the world. Just, uh, you know, if you look at all the different categories and ways of thinking about it, sure. So I, I was kind of surprised that, you know, I, I thought that people saying something was the best in the world would mean almost for sure it was spoiled. Right. Yeah, but it wasn't. And I had, I had another one where um, this is quite early on. I've been in a wooden boat in the sea off the island of Sumbawa. And I ended up getting caught in a vicious typhoon. So I didn't know at first what was happening, but the day before, uh, the ocean had gone smooth as glass. And then soon afterward, the they waves started rising and higher and higher, and eventually it's a raging typhoon all around me. And I remember just clinging to the gunwells trying to survive. And in fact, some, some large car ferries were sent to the bottom by this. And there were a lot of people drowned. But somehow our little wooden boat, through the skill of the crew, was able to ride this out. And eventually we got into this little passage called Bima. But I, I remember in the night looking at the, the typhoon waves thrashing all around me and seeing the phosphorescence in them and thinking how beautiful it was. So I, I thought it was good that I could appreciate at, at that time the, the beauty of these glowing blue waves, even though it was a raging typhoon trying to sink the boat. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And those are two points 
that you hit on that are important for anyone who's traveling. One, I, I think a lot of people who do travel quite often get skeptical. And, you know, you hear from everyone, this is the best this or this is the best that. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But I like that that for you, you were able to find the beauty in that and, and the value in that, even though you know, you went in with a skeptical mind. And sometimes I have to I have to even tell myself, like, don't go in with too high of expectations. Just let it be what it is and see each place for what it is. And then the other was, you know, seeing the amidst something that's crazy, being able to at least appreciate appreciate that as well. And it's pretty impressive that you were able to do something like that while you were in essence, yeah, trying not to drown. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And there was a um there was a funny question to I've never seen a, a tourist ask so stupid a question before as what was asked during that because there was one guy also clinging to the side of the boat there and he kept gesturing and gesturing for a crewman to come from working on the engine because they were trying to keep the engine from cutting out because they needed of course they needed the engine power to keep us facing correctly with each wave that came but he was yelling and yelling and gesturing gesturing so much that a guy left off working on the engine and he timed it between the waves and ran and grabbed and ran and grabbed and ran and grabbed and actually got over there. And, of course, I bent an ear as well to find out what was his emergency. And what he asked was, uh, well, he said, we were promised three meals a day on this boat. So where's my dinner? <laughs> wow. And the crewman was just thinking, what? Yeah, and I, I could hear him say, you know, if you want to you go over there and try to cut some chicken or boil some water. <laughs> I mean, you can just imagine you try to put some water on a, on a stove and bang, it's up against the, the walls and boiling water everywhere. If you try to cut a chicken with a, a knife, you probably have yourself carved up and in the pot before the chicken would be. Right. I mean, just everything, you know, a violent typhoon, it'd be thrown against the walls and could hardly stand in it. Wow. Yeah, he wanted his dinner. Priorities, I guess, Mike, right? Some people have different travel priorities than us. <laughs> Some yeah. people want I that guess chicken. for him, the stomach. <laughs> the stomach came first. Yeah, but that there was a chicken that we were meant to eat, and it survived the journey. <laughs> so it was crowing. It was crowing in the morning when we finally got into Bima, into the port. Wow. Well, what do you then have in the pipeline that people should be looking out for? Either personally, where where do you think you're heading next, or professionally, are you going to be doing? Anything? I mean, I know you said you've been writing a lot and you've obviously done quite a bit of traveling. Is there going to be anything that you're doing with that that people should be on the lookout for? Well, I'm writing a book of my travel experiences and that'll probably take me another, uh, who knows, maybe six months to finish, maybe a little bit longer. So it's been taking me a little bit longer than I than I thought it would. But it turned out some of my chapters are turning out and, you know, I have so many travel stories and I'm trying to include most of them. And I was just talking to my brother who writes professionally. He was saying, oh, you've got, to, you've got to start cutting out some of these stories. But it's, yeah, it's coming along. I've, I've covered maybe 14 of my uh, 23 years so far. <laughs> so and, you're almost there. Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to, yeah, and I'm going to, I have a lot of observations. So thousands of pages of things I noticed or conversations, things like that from around the world. So I've gone through and organized those. And I'll, I'll be, you know, working pretty hard on this book for, uh, give it the next year for that. And then I don't know what afterward, hard to say. I might go over to Russia for a bit. I'd like to, I noticed my Russian language skills have been really, really dropping. So I wouldn't mind to go and try to bring them back up again. So yeah, there's lots of, lots of fun things in the future still. Very, very interesting. And I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Mike, sharing your stories and your wisdom of, of 23 years of travel. And personally, I'm looking forward to, uh, to when you're able to put that all down in writing. I think that will be a fascinating amount of information and some amazing stories. If you could remind people, if they want to learn more about about your journeys and come connect with you, where can they find out about you? Well, I guess I put a lot of stuff up on Facebook. So just uh, Mike Spencer Bound on Facebook. 
So I have a, a public site and my, my other site there. And yeah, other than that, I mean, there's tons and tons of stuff that I've done for the media. But I, I think lately I don't have too much English language stuff. I just finished something for Russia and something for Czech Republic. And uh, they wanted, you know, a bunch of travel photos as well for that. But um, Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to do less of the media thing so I can put more time into the writing. So I haven't done too much in English for the past few weeks. Great. Well, guys, if you're interested in Mike's story and really, how can you not be? Make sure to head over to MikeSpencerBound.com where he has all the articles that he just talked about, the media articles that are linked up there. It's really a treasure trove of information on the journey. And I personally read through almost all of them. Also, guys, don't forget, we will link that up in the show notes of this podcast as well. And you can get every episode of our podcast at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash pods, P-O-D-S. Thank you again, Mike, for coming on. I really appreciate you taking time to sit down, especially because I know that you're running out the door soon to go grab a beer. Uh Yeah, exactly. It's been great. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Until next time, happy free travels.